0: You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. And so often we're running to different things in life to try and bring us joy and hope, to try and bring things that sustain, to try and bring things that bring value or meaning into our lives. And the Bible generally has a term for that or an idea for that, which is called idolatry. Okay, idolatry is essentially the seeking of meaning, value, hope, and salvation. Any one of those, things that only God can give, seeking them in other places than God. And we often think of idolatry as like um, the worship perhaps of statues, right? Like so, uh, like there's a, you know, we worship certain animals, or we worship certain ideas, or certain concepts. So we think of idolatry as like this crazy far off idea that people used to do. But we don't have statues, we don't have those things anymore, but uh, really, there are still many. And Satan is deceptive, and so there's always things in different cultures and different places that are bringing value, and a lot of places in which we will put our hope. So, uh, one, like, we love to run to like theater, right? We Movies, TV shows. Like, we can get enamored with... Certain shows. We can get enamored with certain movies. I mean, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, now, you know, confession, I have seen Endgame and it is awesome. Uh, Yeah, yeah. But we're not doing a sermon series on it. so like we, we, we do, like it, how many movies is it, 22 or something like that? It's made almost $20 billion as an industry, right? And where do you find idolatry? Like where does money go? Where does enthusiasm go? Where do our affections go? You can usually kind of track it down and realize the things that people value the most. And we are a culture, we are a people who love to be entertained. We love it, but it may not be movies, maybe it's sports, right? Now, you, soccer may not be your jam, but it's becoming more and more popular even here. We're getting into the Women's World Cups coming. And so uh, for those of you who are like soccer fans, you go after it, get really excited. I like sports um, more than some and less than others, right? Which is a pretty safe thing to say about anything. Uh, but it may not even just be that. Maybe you're like, I don't even care about sports. But like you set up friends or family or relationships. This is the place in which you find ultimate value and ultimate meaning, right? All of these places and all of these things can be idols, It doesn't just mean the statues that you used to worship or you name them after little g-gods and you go, well, this is what we need here, this is what we need there, right? Seeking value, seeking life, finding hope, trying to put confidence or trust in things other than the Lord, idolatry. And that is one thing that you'll see ever since the fall, Genesis chapter three, God is always confronting us with our idolatry. When the Israel comes into the land, he's like, you better watch out. Watch after your hearts. Know what I've said and know what I've commanded because you are gonna go after the gods of those who are around you, the surrounding nations. You're gonna pursue them. You're gonna like them. You're gonna worship them. We saw that even last week in Solomon, didn't we? Right, so there's King David and the king, like kind of the the monarchy starts with Saul, then it moves to David. David's after God's own heart. It goes to Saul. Saul is there. And Saul has all of these wives in his life, and he is now setting up places within the land of Israel for them to, for the people to come worship. He goes, oh, well, you want this God over here? We'll have a place to worship that God. We'll have a place to worship that God. We'll have a place to worship that God. Well, Saul goes after Saul, because God speaks of this. After Saul, the kingdom is divided. And this is an important thing for our brains to eventually lock into, is that for really the rest of the Old Testament history that we're following, there's 10 tribes in the north and 2 tribes in the south, okay? So Israel is often called the tribes of the north and then the tribes of the south are Judah and Benjamin, often called one. It's kind of wrapped up. Benjamin's kind of surround like, like wrapped up into Judah, but 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And so because of Solomon's disobedience, the nation continues divided, and so that's some of the history that we'll be tracking with from here until we finish out our Old Testament part of this for the next uh, nine weeks or so. We're going to continue this on, and that's going to be an important part of what goes on, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Now, always a confrontation with idolatry, and you'll find that the northern kingdom, they have their own kings, the southern kingdom has their own kings. Almost all the kings are bad. Almost all of them set up idols. All the ones in the north. There's no good king. The Bible talks about no good king in the north. A handful of good kings in the south is like, hey, it was pretty good, but still didn't. Even like their kingdom like, but they still didn't wipe out all the idolatry. They still didn't do this. Well, in the northern kingdom, the ten, there's problems every single time. And we're going to get into one of those this morning. One of those problems that we will see. And it follows the life of Elijah. Now, just by show of hands, you guys familiar with the name Elijah, the person of Elijah? Yeah, like Elijah does a lot of stuff in the Bible. Uh, but he doesn't show up a lot. But he's like, if you talk about like weighty name, significant name, Elijah is one of those names. He just kind of shows up on the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17. It's like, and then Elijah, the uh, Tishbite. Like, and it, where did he come from? Where was he born? What was going on? How was this? Like, he just shows up on the scene. He has a run of a couple of chapters where he does some pretty crazy things, bringing people to life, keeping food going. Um, like, he, like God uses him to kind of say, "No more rain for three years." Uh, James, the half brother of Jesus in the New Testament, all those years later picks up on that. He's like, "Elijah was a guy just like us. He prayed there'd be no rain, there was no rain. He prayed to come back, came back. Like we have this guy Elijah. Elijah doesn't die." Elijah's taken up in 2 Kings chapter two, and he has this protege, Elisha, right? Elijah and Elisha, and Elisha's like, give me a double portion of your spirit, uh, because I wanna be doubly cool. So he does that, but he's taken up, but then like later in the history of Israel, Malachi is prophesying about this kind of return of Elijah, Elijah's gonna come back, and he's gonna, uh, he's gonna turn the father's hearts back to their children, and then there's a prophecy given to about John the Baptist, that he will have the spirit and power of Elijah, so now the guy who is uh, bringing in, heralding the salvation that's gonna come in Jesus, like he said, he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So this guy who has really a very short amount of chapters in the Bible, when you think of like Jacob, Jacob has uh, a good run, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they get like the whole of Genesis 12 onward to Genesis chapter 50. Elijah gets a brief run in 1 Kings and the 2 Kings, But then when Jesus is transfigured there's two dudes who are also there with him Moses and Elijah And so like Peter's like This is awesome! We're going to stay here forever We're going to build tents One for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah How did Peter know who he was, Elijah? Right? Who knows? But he knew in that moment That's Moses and that's Elijah They were not ever alive at the same time But Peter was aware in that moment of what was going on and so Elijah is an important guy. He's mentioned here, he's mentioned in Malachi, he's mentioned that John the Baptist will come in his spirit and power. Jesus makes veiled references to John the Baptist and Elijah, kind of, where you're like, I don't you know, and John the Baptist, they actually, like, Jewish leaders go, hey, John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he's like, nope. And so they just like to make it really confusing for us there are these two witnesses in the book of Revelation that show up, and some people think that Elijah is one of those, other people think, I just think it's two dudes, like they're not sure, but they're trying to go, what is up with Elijah? I was talking with some guys even this week in our little uh, group we gather on Thursdays, and uh, Elijah's ministry is New Testament-esque, that's kind of why it's cool. Like, you're bringing people to life? You're keeping food going on for a while? Like, who else produces food out of nowhere? Yeah, God does that. He does that with manna. Jesus does that with like fish and loaves. Who else brings people back to life, right? We've seen that with Jesus and Lazarus. Like So Elijah has this kind of ministry where you just kind of go, this feels different. It just seems like a different kind of guy who just kind of plopped in there to 1 Kings chapter 17 and goes on and does some things where you're just like, what? So here's what's pretty cool. This whole part, 17, kind of the end, uh, to where he's taking it up, Elijah's ministry has a big thing to do with uh, Baalism, right? Now, Baal is a false god, kind of in charge of fertility, weather, they would try to kind of conjure up these ideas, of like, if they go to Baal, like, if it's not raining, you go to Baal, and you try to make Baal, like, happy so that it rains, and so Elijah's ministry is directly confronting the idols that have kind of come into the nation of Israel through Ahab, a king in the north— And his wife Jezebel, who was not a big fan of the prophets of God and was a bigger fan of the gods of the surrounding nations, okay? So Elijah's ministry at this point in time is directly confronting the false beliefs in the northern kingdom, Israel, there's 10 tribes at that time, in the Lord. There isn't a lot, we don't read a lot of prophetic activity in the northern kingdom. Most of it is the southern, like prophets are to the southern kingdom, those two uh, but we do see Elijah as his ministry directly combating the false beliefs that exist within the northern kingdom that have come in through the influence of Ahab and his wife. So, three years have essentially gone on, and the Lord has said to, to Elijah, because it hasn't rained, he actually went into the town, he's bringing people to life, he's, bringing, he's like ministering to Gentiles. Interesting, right? He's ministering to people outside of the nation of Israel. He's bringing their you know, like kids back to life, he's providing extra food, and he's doing this in towns that are kind of like the epicenter of Baal worship. And so even as he is ministering and doing these things, like every time he's like, let's go. Like he's, he is bringing up, he's confronting false beliefs in the people at that time. And this comes to a crescendo in 1 Kings chapter 18. And it grows because he's like, all right, God tells him, I want you to go back, go to Ahab, And you tell him, it's time. It's essentially what he does. So they throw down, right? The gloves are off. But he finds this guy, Obadiah, who was a servant in Ahab's household, who was a God-fearer, right? He trusted in the Lord, and he was protecting God's prophets. And he comes across Obadiah because Ahab and Obadiah are like, let's go find Elijah, right? We're going to go get him. We're going to get rid of him. Obadiah's Obadiah is not going to do that. So he finds Elijah, Obadiah are there. Elijah's like, hey, you go tell Ahab, I'm ready. We're going to meet. Obadiah's like, "Uh uh-uh, not going to do that, because if Ahab finds out that we met, and you're not along with me, I'm dead, because you're not going to show back up. He doesn't have a lot of a confidence in Elijah at that moment. You're not going to show back up. So no, I am not going to go tell Ahab that I found you and I didn't kill you, essentially. You know, that was kind of the idea there. <clears throat> He's like, I promise you I'll be there. So Obadiah goes to Ahab and goes, I found Elijah. He's ready to meet. He's ready to meet. This has been no rain in the land for three years. No rain, Right? Baal has control over the weather, but he's not doing that great of a job at this point in time, three years in. He goes, let's meet. So we're going to pick up in verse 17 of chapter 18 of 1 Kings, right as Ahab and Elijah meet, and then we're going to continue on through that meeting with what happens. Pretty cool. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel, he, Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandment of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send, gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel, remember, is Ahab's wife, so Jezebel's friends with you know, the false god worshippers and prophets. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah uh, came near to all the people and said, How long are you going to go around limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Why? Because they know what's up. Their tails between their legs already. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are over 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it, and you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God." And all the people answered, Sounds good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Hey, you choose for yourself one bull. You prepare it first. You're many. Call upon the name of your God. Put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar, kind of jumping and moving around it, trying to conjure up some kind of activity. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. It's rather bold to me. He said, oh, go ahead and cry aloud. Go, go for it. For he is a God. Maybe he's musing or he's relieving himself. Maybe he's in the Corinthian. Or he is on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. Yeah, maybe he's just, you know, just keep going. That's fine. Maybe, he's, maybe he'll soon show up. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves, right? Like trying to get attention. They're actually cutting their bodies until the blood gushed out upon them, which is okay, you know, PG-13. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the ablation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So Elijah's turn. I bet you, I mean, even if you're unfamiliar with this passage, you know where this is going. Elijah's like, all right, you know, i Cracks his knuckles, loosens up. So he says, Hey, come on, come near to me. All the people came near, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. So he's not doing 10 and 2, he's doing 12, which is pretty unique, isn't it? At that point in time, he's doing 12. And with stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed a good amount and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces laid it on the wood and he said hey go ahead we're gonna, we're gonna make this more fun now fill four jars with water pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood anybody ever tried to light wet wood and yeah, it it's not as easy so they had to go find some water pour it, on the, uh, pour it there and he said hey do it again they did it again. He said, "Do it again." They did it again. They did it a third time. And the water ran round the altar, filled the trench also with water, so it soaked, the ground is soaked, the offering soaked, the wood is soaked. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near, and he said, "O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, which is the name of Jacob, let it be known That this day you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I, I have done all these things according to your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then... The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. And Elijah said, Seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And he seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and he slaughtered them there. Whoops! Can't escape. What were they doing? Assuming that they knew what was best, their God was going to answer, Elijah was like, watch this, soak it. All he does is pray, right? There's no dancing around, there's no conjuring, there's no anything. Lord, do the thing. I've never seen dirt burned, but it happened there. It burned everything. He says, no room for false prophets here in the land, none, and they're gone. Now this, that's a pretty significant thing that goes on right there. But continuing in verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there's the sound of rushing rain. hasn't rained for three years. Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down to the earth, put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. He went up and looked, and there's nothing. He said, go again. So seven times, kind of that number of perfection, the number of completion. Go again, go again, go again, go again, go again, go again. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. He said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. You don't want to get those chariot wheels stuck in the mud. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now I'll continue, Elijah's ministry isn't done but that kind of crescendo is what's going on. I might say being taken up in chariots of fire is kind of a crescendo too because that's pretty cool not dying. I would agree. If you want to pick 2 Kings 2 as the coolest part of the Elijah story, you can pick that, right? Like that's okay, you have my permission. But in confronting idolatry over 400 to 1 that's a pretty daunting task as we might think about it 400 to 1 and there is Elijah who never once seems to be concerned about what's going on who never once seems to doubt anything that God is doing who never once is like well I don't know 400 so 450 that's a lot of folks not one time is he concerned about what the Lord is going to do? And so I just want to bring this up in a few segments that I think will help us. Because what I, what I don't want you to do coming away from this is like, just being like, all right, well, let's just do cool things. And let's say, you know, be like, show up, God. Right? Like, it doesn't happen like that all the time. In the history of the nation of Israel, God is in this moment showing Listen, the land has been filled with idols. And they all think that these idols are better. But when you need them most, they don't show up. Watch what the Lord does. Watch how he moves. And it just takes a prayer. Now, we're discussing this even recently, uh, back on Thursday. The book of James says this about Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us which kind of ruins your idea that he was extra cool and so he got to do cooler things. When James goes, was a man just like us. He prayed, rain came. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective is what we see in James. And so we can't really then, as much as it might be nice to go, like we can't really say, well, Elijah is Elijah, duh. Right? It's transfiguration, James talks about him. When James goes, he's just a person who trusted in the Lord. Well, that changes how we might read this. And so I just want to go through a couple of ideas here. First, Elijah was cool confronting idolatry, he just confronted it. <clears throat> he wasn't afraid. I love even that first exchange that Elijah and Ahab have in verses 17, 18, and 19. Ahab says, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? He answered, Not, I haven't troubled Israel, you have. Like, he has no problem. That's Remember, that's the king of the northern kingdom. And he goes right to the king, and he's like, don't you dare say this is on me. This is on you. You did this. You've troubled Israel. You've led these tribes astray. You have gone after false gods. It is not me. And I just go, oh. Uh, that's like, it makes you kind of nervous, right? Like, like Ahab could just be like, And you're dead. But he doesn't. Elijah, in that moment, was just okay, confident to confront the idolatry of the land. Now, why? Why? Because he knew that there was an emptiness to idolatry. He knew it. He knew idolatry was empty. It served no purpose. It got you nowhere. Nowhere. So, you're familiar with the phrase, like, midlife crisis? Yeah, you may or may not have one, uh, but let's just pretend you all do, right? You know, in 30s, 40s, 50s. I don't know when midlife is anymore, 60s, 70s, 80s, but whenever that is, you hit it, and you, you have this moment where you're like, oh my gosh, what am I living for? What am I doing? Right, maybe you've amassed a whole lot of money. Maybe you've amassed a whole lot of debt, right? Either one. And you get done, you're like... What was the point? What was the point of this? Why did I do this? You look around and you realize that you have like no solid relationships. You don't have friends. Why don't I have friends? Well, it's because you're kind of a jerk, like like whatever it might be. You get to a spot, you get a little self-reflective, you look back and you go, did anything that I do matter? Well, standing on the other side of that is Elijah, who's like, I know this stuff's empty. I know it serves no purpose. And listen to what he says. Even as he gets there in verses 20, 21, 22, 21 specifically, he goes, How long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Now, listen to the kind of confidence that's even in that statement. He is so sure that Baalism is empty that he's like, If, you th- if that's true, go after it. That's fine. This actually seems to reflect some of the language of Jesus, because Jesus is like, follow me. People are like, well, hold on, let me go do some other things first. He's like, nope, nope. Either follow me or don't. And Elijah stands up and goes, hey, how long are you going to do this thing? Either Baal is right or the Lord is right. And we like to live in a culture today, don't we? We're like, everything's right. We have that phrase, your truth, right? Live your truth, speak your truth, believe your truth. And even in Elijah's statement, he's like, hey, either, either you're right and I'm wrong, or I'm right and you're wrong, but we're not both right here. And so, what does he say? Go after it if you think it's right. But you notice that statement in verse, uh, at the end of verse 21 the people did not answer him a word. Why? Because they knew. They knew. Even when we are going after things that are less than, different than, not as good as the Lord, we often know it. We often know it. When you pursue sin or satisfaction or the wrong kinds of relationships, the wrong kinds of behavior, like when you do those things and you try to find value, the last thing that you want are people telling you that that's wrong because then what does it do? You're like, I know, but just just be quiet. And so they're silent. Why? Because they know. They know. I mean, think about it. It's been three years. There's been no rain. If they had any power by then, you think the rains would have come? Yeah, probably so. Three years, no rain in the land. Like they're like, clearly something's not working. But there's this other thing that's interesting that maybe we might forget. They also had unique access to the political power of the northern kingdom. Well, if they rejected their God, what happens? They also reject, they are rejected by Ahab and Jezebel. And so they're in this place where like, yeah, yeah, it seems like this may not be real, but Jezebel is also kind of cutting off the prophets of the Lord from the land. So if I jump ship... I also lose access and power, and maybe I die. There's always a cost associated with trusting God, isn't there? Always. There's a cost associated with trusting false gods, there's a cost associated with believing things that you know aren't true and following after them, and sometimes all we hope is that we can get through life long enough without there being any real significant consequences, and then we die and we go, whoops, yeah. That you might even be able to live your life long enough, kind of just kind of coasting along in hopes that your idolatry and your lack of confidence in the Lord never really gets found out, and then it does. And you realize that there is one God. So this whole thing is a confrontation back and forth and back and forth, and Elijah knows what's going on, so much so that he's not even afraid to mock them. I don't know. I think I made a question for the community groups discussion. Like, when is it okay to do that? I don't have an answer. Like, when is it okay? But I think if you're talking to somebody, this is a question that sometimes I ask. You might have heard me say it even in a sermon, where you just go, How's that going for you? How's it going for you? Like, do we have such confidence in who God is? That we know that if somebody tries to test the boundaries of what is good and what is right and what they think is true, they're just going to come back empty. Elijah has that. He knows. I know who the Lord is. I know his power. I know what he can do. So, go, yeah, you're sure, you want to go after Baal? Go after Baal. You will not come back satisfied. And sometimes people do that. They just kind of go, you know what? And it's just a foolish statement, but we still make it. I just need to go. I just need to do this. I just need to go off and believe my own thing and do my own thing and live my own way. I see some people sometimes, like, they leave their spouse. And I'm like, in what world is this okay? I I need to do this. I need to go find myself. False. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. This isn't okay. Like, you're thinking Looney Tunes right now. I think there are times when we're looking at people face to face and we can just go, that way is wrong. That way is empty. And that way is hopeless. Now, sometimes, this is what we can't do. We can't, like, in our little arrogance, go, yeah, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go call everything out. Right? Like, I'm just going to tell everybody everything's dumb all the time. Elijah clearly didn't do that. He seemed to be rather well-timed. Three years had passed. And he's like, okay, here's the moment. So quite some time had gone on where Elisha's just kind of living in the wilderness, being fed food by birds, and then the Lord's like, it's time, and then he goes. So when the Lord called him in, he was ready to confront. So this isn't, I don't think this gives us license to confront all the time, arrogantly just telling everybody that they're stupid. But what we do see is that there are times and places where the Lord is going to call us in to call out the foolishness of a person's beliefs, because he's used that in our lives, hasn't he? Anybody here today who has their faith in Jesus has been confronted with how foolish their own beliefs before Jesus were. It's not as if we have the corner on the market, right? Like we were in the same boat, right? The the Bible phrase is like, as such were you, right? Like, you did this too. You thought this too. You believed this too. And so there is a humility that comes with realizing that the things that you held as true and valuable and good crumble. You can say, hey, listen, I've tried to trust those things. I put my hope in those things. It will not work. And yet in our pride, in our arrogance, what do we think? Oh, no, 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 I'm different. I'm gonna make my idol worship work. You won't make it work. But you can try. And this is this is what I love. So the Baal worshipers do their thing. Of course, one of my favorite verses, verse 29, the second half, no one answered, no one paid attention. Because at the time your idol, you need your idol the most, will be the time that it lets you down. Because it's hollow, it's empty, it's pointless. So we're like, all right, 400 of us. Come on down, fire. Nothing. No one answered. No one paid attention. That's how it will be for anyone in this room who is going after someone or something, trying to find hope in someone or something other than the Lord. And so often we find ourselves getting frustrated and bothered. We don't even know why, but if you trace it back far enough, it's likely because you're trying to put your confidence in something other than God. You're trying to find something to be true, and it is showing itself up as false. And you don't know what to do with that. Because it takes, for us, an enormous amount of humility to put our pride down and go, the things that I thought were true are not. The things that I thought were better are not. The things that I thought were right are not. That's essentially what conversion is. I thought the way that I knew how the world worked was sure. And then Jesus showed up. And he showed me that everything I thought about the world was not right. I thought everything, I thought I was good. Jesus showed me I wasn't, but I was valuable. That I was created in his image, but that I was utterly sinful and there was really nothing good about me. And yet through Christ I am good. Jesus changes everything about how we view this world. But there takes a moment where we have to go, all right, I surrender. What I thought was right, what I thought was true, what I thought was good, wasn't. And so often we're just kind of floating along in kind of the whims of what else goes on in this world. And we just go with majority because we live in a culture where majority rules, right? How many people think this is a good idea, right, 51%? Great. That's why in a company keeping 51% ownership is kind of a good thing because everybody else could vote no and one person can vote yes and it's done. Well, that's not how the Lord works. <laughs> He's not like, "Well, whatever you guys, I mean, take a vote and whatever you think is the most accurate parts of scripture, like go ahead and go with that and the parts you think are least accurate, just vote those out." Not how it works. It is a transformation of what we have recognized as true. And so often we're having to bring the things that we thought were false to him and go, this was wrong. And you'll see even in that passage as they head into um, the prophets of Baal that the prophets of Baal are punished for their belief. Now Elijah knew, right? Elijah knew God would respond. He knew God would be the only one to respond. And so think about it. You have these 400 plus prophets on one side dancing around, screaming, and trying to do things to get God's attention. And then there's Elijah who's like, soak it three times over. Go ahead. And then what does he do? He bows. He bows. And he says this prayer. "O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. As in, We're talking about the things you have already revealed, the promises you have already made. Let it be known that you are God and that I am your servant and I have done these things according to your word. O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. No dancing. No convincing. So often we have this transactional relationship with God, don't we? Where we're like, If I do X, Y, and Z, you'll do these things, right? I'm going to do this, and then you respond in kind. And we may think that that's not how we do it, but we really do, because if we read the Bible for like five days straight, we're like, man, I'm crushing it with this Bible thing. Like, I'm awesome. And then you find like a quarter on the ground, you're like, God's really blessing me, right? Like, Like, we take this way of belief and behavior where we go, oh, I know it's all about grace, but... When I start doing obedient things and then God shows up, it's because I started doing obedient things. And then all of a sudden we become transactional again, don't we? Like I do this and then you do that. God, I I live in this way, I act in this way, and then you respond in this way. And all of a sudden we have become Baal worshipers, parading around like, you know, with Jesus on. There's his name around it. But our activity really says, I do certain things and God likes them. And we think... I'm really crushing the Jesus thing right now. Elijah doesn't go there. Where does he go? We've had this prayer in David as well. Show yourself up, do the things you said you would do. And even his prayer is not like, so I can be vindicated. So that I can look right. What is his prayer? So that these people may know. Because God is about being known. He wants to be known. He sent his son so that we might see the fullness of God. We might have the mind of God. And so God's desire is to be known, to be worshipped, to be seen. And so he's like, so these people watching may know that you are the Lord. That's often not a prayer that we have. It's like, Lord, give me things. Bless me. Take care of me. Meet my needs. Do things for me. Where is our prayer like Elijah? Show up powerfully so that other people may know that you are the Lord. That's, that's the prayer of a righteous person. Because it's not concerned about us, but on the Lord being worshiped. There are certainly prayers you can pray for yourself. I have those all the time. But the desire for God to be known and worshiped by those who do not know him, and do not worship him, should be at the core of what we pray, and what we think about, and what we as a church long for. So I love what Matt and the missions team do, which is like we have to prioritize the unreached, and how we think about how we spend our money, and how we give it, and the missionaries that we support. Because we want people who have not heard about Jesus to hear about Jesus. And we want people to be in it for the long haul. We don't want like these easy trips where oh yeah, we'll support, no. We want you to go to like places where you may die for the Lord because we want people to hear about him. That that is our heart cry. That people who don't know him, who cannot see him, who don't even understand the name Jesus might fall down and worship him. And then as the passage continues, Elijah prays and the rains come. What is the sound of rushing water? I don't see anything, just keep checking. And what does he do again? What does he do again? Verse 45, and in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. I mean, so this was, think about the patience it takes from our perspective, to be like, God is on a three-year, watch-how-great-I-am journey. Three years to get from no rain to rain. And yet we're like, I don't know, I prayed about it for like a minute, maybe a minute and a half, and God didn't do anything, so I just kind of moved on. Just felt like, you know, felt like that wasn't on his heart at this time. Three years before God goes to Elijah and goes, it's time, buddy, Let's do it. Three years. Here's some birds bringing you food. I just think that's such a bizarre part of it, right? Ravens feeding him. And then at that time, when the Lord had called Elijah into it, he prays and the rain returns. Elijah was a man just like us. So this shows, whole passage, Elijah's ministry, shows this one significant thing. More than one, but here's one. Idolatry is hollow. It is hollow. It might look pretty, it might be expensive, but it is hollow. And all of us in this room either are experiencing that right now or have experienced that. We either are experiencing it because we don't know the Lord and we are putting our hope and our joy and our emotions and affections and money and time and energy into things that do not save, but we just hope they do, or the Lord has confronted us in that and has shown us our ways are foolish. I talk about sometimes this is the way the Lord brought me to faith uh, when I was in high school. And my testimony goes something like this. I thought I was all right. I really, like, you know, sometimes you want those, like, really stark, like, I was the worst person in the world. And then I came out of, like, the ditch covered in blood. And the Lord was like, follow me. I'm like, I did. You know, like, like, I don't have those. It's funny when I talk to people who have those stories, like, you don't want that story. You don't want to be that lost. You don't want to be that like, like that hopeless. Like it is not fun. So praise God for that. I don't really remember the time I didn't know the Lord's stories because those are really God's grace. You don't want to feel what I experienced. You don't, want to, you don't want to see those, but the Lord uses each story. And so it's funny when you think you're okay and then the Lord shows you that you're not because you're kind of like, wait a second. Wait a second, like, I have done nothing really wrong. I mean, I got written up one time for putting a nickel in a locker, and you couldn't open it, and I got charged like 15 bucks, and I got written up. I punched a guy once, got ISS. But in general, I mean, don't punch people, okay? hurt my thumb more than it hurt him, too. I didn't know how to punch, so I came in the wrong way. But... By and large, right, by and large, I'd go, I did a whole lot more kind and generous things than goofy things. Now tell me if you've ever heard this story before. You measure it out, you ask anybody, no one's gonna say Hans is a punk, they're gonna say Hans is an all right dude. So to be confronted with the fact that you're not that good is weird, because this thing happens in your head. I went and I talked to somebody, I was like, uh I use these words, I need to change. Not even, I like, I, from what to what? I didn't even know. I need to change. Because I didn't have this like long train of things where I was like, I gotta get rid of this, gotta get rid of this, gotta get rid of this. So in your head, to go from I'm fine in one moment to oh my gosh, I'm not fine in another is one of the most bizarre things that can happen. But what is that? That is the Lord revealing to us something that we could not find on our own. And he was showing me that what I had believed and hoped in was hollow. That even if my hope is like to be a good kid, to be a good citizen, to be a good dad, to be a good husband, to be whatever, to be good at certain things. It is such a shallow belief. Because it's only rooted in me and how I want people to view me. It's not enduring beyond even when I die. Like, when I die, I want people to remember me as a nice guy. Like, no, 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 life is eternal. I'd rather be, you know, like, worshiping the Lord forever rather than remembered for the 70, 80, or 90 years the Lord gives me on this earth. But so often, we have this view of, like, I want to be good in this life. But the Lord is working something far beyond this life that enters in even to now. And so I hope for every single person in this room, man, woman, and child, that he shows us the foolishness of our idolatry, that we realize that our pride does not save us, our work ethic does not save us, our family does not save us, our job does not save us, our car does not save us, the amount of friends that we have do not save us, our cool ideas do not save us, the fact that we think we're all right does not save us, but it is only the work of the Lord Jesus. That he confronts us and reveals to us just how hollow our beliefs can be. Because that is gracious of him, because he replaces it with something lasting, enduring, and eternal. One of the kindest things God can do for any person in this room is to show them that the hopes that they had were false. And that there's something far better to trust in than the things that we can conjure up. Because at the end of the day, if we do that, no one answers. And no one pays attention. But the Lord is God. and He is good. So I'll pray for that for us now. Heavenly Father, we are a grateful people because of what you have done for us in the sending of Jesus, the life that we have, the joy that we have. And now, God, we would ask for you to show up And reveal more and more, even to men, women, and children in this room, reveal false belief, empty belief, idolatry, hopelessness. For those in this room who have put their faith in Jesus, show us where our confidence is not in you, but where it should be. Make it known, Lord, that you are God and no one else. Show up strong, powerful, mighty in the lives of people here. Save many, Lord, by your grace and for your glory, so that you might be worshipped more and more, and your name might go out to all nations. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.